It was now about noon. And darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, Jesus breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. And when all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. But all his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Join me, please, as we pray. We pray that amidst the words of a preacher, that the one living word of the Spirit might be heard by your people this day. Here in this locale, but in churches around our city and all around the globe, may this holy week become holy, sacred. May your people be enlivened even as you are crucified. We would be united with all of your children, even as you taught us, Lord Jesus, to pray to God in this way, praying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I was in Texas this week with my pastor friends. You may not know this, that, but there's no, NCAA, there's no Texas basketball team in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I know you feel real bad about that. <laughs> and as a result, we didn't watch much basketball, but we did watch lots of movies. We watched the latest uh, James Bond movie, 007, called Skyfall. It's the story of a deranged former secret agent who plots to take over the world. It may be not much of a spoiler alert to say that James Bond survived. And in the end, he got the pretty girl. We watched a classic James Bond movie, Goldfinger, which I think was from back in my high school days. The story of James Bond, this man named Goldfinger and his Assistant odd, odd fellow, odd job, odd job, who uh, wears the hat that can cut people's head off. It was, uh, it's a great movie. Um, it's a story of um, a plot to 
take over all the gold in Fort Knox, Kentucky, just south of us, which gave me a great idea for how to fund this renovation that we're going to (laughs) embark on. I'm going to meet with the deacons about that after the service. We watched some classic films. We watched uh, one called Black Day, Bad Day at Black Rock. It's a Spencer Tracy movie where he goes to this really um, isolated town out far in the west only to stumble upon a murder that took place upon a Japanese-American during World War II. We watched The Flim Flam Man, George C. Scott movie, where... George C. Scott plays kind of a comedic role. Uh, He's a a con man who usually cons people who themselves want to cheat and win against others. Someone in the group wanted to watch Zero Dark Thirty, the story of the killing of Osama bin Laden. And I guess my only excuse for watching it is there's only one place to sit in this house. And my choices were to either watch this movie or go outside and take a walk where all the rattlesnakes and coyotes were um, looking for me to eat me. So I I chose to watch the movie. We watched The Life of Pi, which is uh, an amazing story of a young Indian boy who is shipwrecked. He loses all of his family, loses everything on the ship, is is killed and, and sunk. He spends... Over 200 days at sea in the Pacific Ocean, maybe or maybe not with a Bengal tiger, depending on how you look at it. You're probably thinking by now, Joe forgot to write a sermon, and so he decided to give us a list of all of the movies he watched this week. Or maybe you're thinking, I knew it was a bad idea for him to do this series on the why of the cross. I knew he was going to run out of material before the end of Lent. I list these films because as I made my way home, I reflected on these films and noticed that these films, these stories are essentially different iterations of the same story. It's the same story over and over again. John Steinbeck says there's really only one story in the world, and that is that human beings are caught in this web between good and evil. This conflict, this eternal battle between the forces of light and darkness. Now, the English teachers in the classroom would say, well, this is obvious. You can't have a story unless there are two sides. You can't have a story unless there's some tension. And so you have to have these opposing sides. But it's uncanny to me how much we love this single story. How much we delight in watching all the different iterations of it that have played out in literature, in movies. We'll watch it and read it over and over again. And it's not just the entertainment world. We're willing to live out this story again and again and again. In fact, it's really the basis of our social order as a people. It's what creates our culture. It's what defines the boundaries between us and them. It's how we define ourselves. We look at others and 
We decide what we like or don't like about them and how we're going to differentiate ourselves between us and them. We're always, always living in some relation to this battle between good and evil. Either we're participants in it, we're critics of it, we're trying to avoid it, we're trying to fight it, we're trying to rationalize it, we're trying to analyze it. But it still is part of who we are. Decisions, large and small. How we gather into groups. How we decide to be a church. How we decide to be this church as distinct from that church. Even March Madness. All this basketball stuff in some ways is, is a game about us and them. And adults, adults who are otherwise pretty normal people, will paint their faces and yell at the top of their lungs at a TV as if... I don't know if you know this, but it really doesn't affect the game when it's in Lexington, but we still do it, don't we? It affects our choice of neighborhoods. It affects our choice of politics. It affects the social circles we live in because we want to gather with like-minded, like-looking people. And even in church, even here at Highland, we've been prone to say, We're Baptists, but we're not that kind of Baptist, right? We're not the first people to do this. The anthropologists tell us that as far back as they can study, back beyond the Greeks and the Romans, back beyond the Mayans and the Aztecs, people did this single story before us. The one thing I remember from my college sociology class is a word I try to trot out at every opportunity, ethnocentrism. Our way is best. Our way is right. You see, Mom, that college education paid off, at least for today. John Meacham has a new biography on Thomas Jefferson. In it, he talks about the battles, the pitch battles, within this nation that we tend to think of as united, the battles between with Washington and Adams and Hamilton on one side and Jefferson and Madison on the others, you think our politics today are tough? They took the gloves off back then. And by the way, I've thrown in this reference to the John Meacham biography to subtly alert you to the fact that I'm well read. It's a way we can differentiate, you know? And I've just given you that little sidebar about how I'm well read to convey to you how self aware I am, how self revealing I am. And then I've just given you that sidebar so that you'll say, what a clever preacher Joe is. He's better than the rest. See, we, we can't stop ourselves. We can't define our own goodness without pointing out other people's badness or differentness or lessness. We all do it. We all have the attitude that if we could just get rid of them in some way, either co-opt them to our side or or. or, or Or eliminate them. Eliminate them. The world would be a better place. 
The Bible plays into this story. It's a story of the battle between good and evil. Story of conflict, of over against. Don't be like them, be like this. And into the story of Jesus it goes. And especially the story of Holy Week. Where we see the conflict coming to a head. And you see the religious authorities and the political authorities converging together and and saying to each other, we've got to get rid of this guy. We can't have this man around. So the whole Bible is set in this context that is the human context, this single story, but along comes Jesus. And we are prone, I think, to hear his message, to hear his instruction, to hear his way and truth and life through the earphones of that old story. To hear his message through the earphones of that old story of conflict and defeating others and eliminating evil and defeating enemies. Last week in the worship service, we all sang the little chorus, goodness is stronger than evil, love is stronger than hate. But really, Beneath it, we sing, we are better than you guys. We will wipe you guys out. It's part of our story. We're in church on Sunday. All those other people at Starbucks, oh, you know, we're better. But that's not the story that Jesus operated from. That's not the story that he was willing to participate in. On Palm Sunday, we can create what almost looks like a military parade, but that's not the parade that he led. There was a military parade probably happening on the other side of Jerusalem as Pontius Pilate made his way into the holy city in order to quell the annual uprisings that might happen during Passover. And Jesus himself could have created that kind of military, us-against-them kind of mentality. He could have whipped up the crowds who were tired of Roman oppression and the rules of the religious leaders. He could have agitated for fighting. He could have brought swords instead of palm branches. But instead, we get this different narrative, this different story. Some people think it's the most foolish story in the world. Here's the story. When the religious leaders conspired with the political leaders to gang up on Jesus, when Judas betrayed him and Peter denied him, when the Palm Sunday crowd turned fickle and began to yell crucify him, When the soldiers came and arrested him, when even the casual observers, those just walking by, got in on the scene and began to derail him, when even the man on the cross next to him began to mock him, when we began to betray him and reject him and deny him or ignore him, Jesus refuses to take up the old story. He refuses to play by the old script. He refuses to be against us. He takes it all. He absorbs it all. 
I love that quote from last week's uh, service. The John Howard Yoder quote, The cross isn't just the way to the kingdom of God. The cross is the kingdom. It's the way. He takes it all. He absorbs our hatred and our fear and our ignorance and our competition and our greed and all of the scapegoating we do. You're wrong. I'm right. You're bad. I'm good. And spoiler alert here for those of you who are coming next Sunday. He comes back. And when he comes back, he comes back to announce this, that the age of scapegoating is over. The age of revenge-seeking is over. The age of competition is over. He doesn't come back in vengeance. He doesn't come back just to prove that God was right. He doesn't come back to show us a trick that heaven can do on earth. He doesn't come back to create an oppositional army. He comes back to say that from now on, my people will be fed by a different food. My people will be energized by a different agenda. My people will be animated by a different source, and that is love. Love. Our politics, our values, our worth as human being is judged by love alone. Jesus even went so far as to say this. Even those who are caught up in the old story, love them too. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you and despitefully use you. On the cross, he prayed to God, Father, forgive them, my killers, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It's a profound paradigm shift in how we are called to live and love in this world. I love our capital campaign slogan. Uh, created by Susan Coleman, the genius uh, among us. Building love. Building love. Because it's about capital campaign, you might think it's about our building. We love our building. But really, it's about building love here. Creating spaces where our children can learn and grow in this new story, this new way. You might call it a love story. To build on love. Love that is only, only found in God. Revealed finally and fully in Jesus. And embodied for you and me. You may be among those who think, that's foolishness. That's the stupidest. The world can't operate by love. Well, you've, you've, got to have, you've got to have enemies. You've got to have, how will we know who we are if we don't know who, who our enemies are? But in the words of that popular TV counselor, Dr. Phil, how's that working out for you? How's that old story working for God's creation? How's that old story working out for those who are the, who are the least and the last and the lost. And in fact, how's it working out for you? 
Does that old story bring you happiness, peace, contentment, joy? The why of the cross. Jesus Christ died on a cross for you and me to give us a new story, a different story, a love story. You may want to argue, well, the church has had that story for 2,000 years. It's obviously not very effective. Look at the world we're in and how powerful the church is. But I have to ask us, myself included, have we ever really put this new story into play for any sustained period of time? Have we, we ever really been a community of unconditional love and forgiveness and peace and purpose? Occasionally individuals do. We call them saints. But as a people, as a church, what might it be for us to build on love? What might it say if we set aside that old story that we've lived into for so long and entered into the world of love and forgiveness and unity of all of God's children. G.K. Chesterton said that there's a sense in which Christianity feels like it's old hat. So many peoples and cultures and civilizations have tried to live as Christians, and yet they still fall short. They didn't produce that missing link, that holy grail, that secret to life to explain our existence. But Chesterton says the truth is Christianity hasn't been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Gordon Cosby, the great innovator, pastor, founding pastor of Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C., died this week. He said at one time, if people were transformed by the Christian story, we really wouldn't have a place for them in the straitjacket of Christianity and its present iteration. The church isn't designed for those speaking, seeking spiritual depth. It's designed for infancy. But oh my, what if there was a church here and there, maybe here? What if there was a church that hears this new story and is transformed by it? So forgiven, so enlivened, so, so uh, united that we have the capacity to be people of love in this world. Is that foolish? Someone asked me recently how long I've been preaching. I added up the years and answered, I've, I've been preaching for 34 years. And she missed her cue. She was supposed to say, oh, you started preaching when you were eight years old, I guess. She didn't say that. What she said was, oh, my gosh, 34 Palm Sundays. How can you possibly have anything new to say? 
Surely you've worked every angle of this Palm Sunday story. You've, you've talked about it from the angle of Jesus, from the angle of his followers, from the spectators on the side, from the angle of the donkey. Maybe this year you can try it from the angle of the trees that have all their branches stripped off and you can complain about environmental injustice or something. <laughs> and my answer was, I still have something to say. Because I'm afraid I still haven't fully experienced the riches of this Christian way. I haven't fully stepped out of the battles, the stories of conflict, the stories we live and tell ourselves thousands of times every day. I haven't stepped out of that way, out of that story, and into the story of love fully. Maybe you have to be born again in order to truly hear that story at the depth of our being. I was a little boy when the church taught me the passage of scripture that Jocelyn used earlier in the prayer. For God so loved the world that God gave God's only son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. I learned it as a little boy. All these years later, I'm still trying to learn it. And I'm trying to learn the verse that follows it. John three seventeen. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but rather in order that the world might be saved. What's it mean to be saved? To be invited out of that old story and into the love story. Paul said to those who are on the outside, to those who are perishing, those who are living in the old story, it's just foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. question for you and me today is do we believe it? Let's pray together. Shed new light on your cross, O God. We may see your way anew. We may hear this story and be born again. In the name of the one who came that we might be born again, the crucified Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Hymn number 171 provides us an opportunity to sing our gratitude to God. I hope that each one of us, as we sing, will make our own form of commitment. It may be this morning that you feel called or ready to be part of what God is doing here at Highland to come and profess your faith and be baptized. We would welcome that. Let's stand together, 171.